All right, cool. All right, let's do the intro. I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Okay, and we're rolling with Nokomoto episode 24. I'm your host, Moto G Pete, and with me is Swiggy. Yup. Okay. Now we've done a lot of rambling in the beginning of episodes. I think it's time to return to form once again and start this one off with best worst bike in the world. And let's continue with our new disclaimer for this segment in which, you know, the best and worst bike in the world, whilst they are probably truly the best and worst bike in the world this week, if you own the worst bike, don't get too butthurt about it. There'll be a new worst bike next week. Okay. It may be the, the best bike in the world. Yeah. Who, who knows? knows? Who knows? All right. So, Swiggy, you have worst bike this week. I do. All right. And let's see. Reveal it. The Honda CB1100. Okay. Now, a lot of people like this bike, and a lot of people hate this bike. This is true. But, okay. Let me let me just lay the groundwork for you here. Okay. So, if you were to look at the CB1100 in isolation, it's kind of a pretty cool bike. Is it? It, it is. All well, right. here, here's the thing. If you look at my first bike... Right. Which, you know, granted, everyone's first bike is amazing because it's... Your first bike. Your first bike. But if you look at my first bike, which is a CB1000C, Mm -hmm. it's basically that bike, the same 89-ish horsepower with another 24 foot-pounds of torque. The extra torque is cool. That's for sure. When you really think about what the visceral feeling of a bike really is, it's it's all in the torque. Unless you're taking it to a track or to a drag strip. Well, you know what, though? Like, I don't know. Is it, though, because your, your CB1000 had... You're really like... getting in the way of me shitting on this bike. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, here's the thing. In isolation... Personally, I think it's kind of a cool-looking bike. It's got its own thing going on. Even though it's a retro bike, it, it is very unique in its styling in the kind of mixture of modern and old. It's got a lot of torque. It's got respectable horsepower. Mm-hmm. But here's where the real problem is. What's that? So this bike was released in 2011. And they've been updating it ever since. You have to keep in mind that this bike was released... um, This bike was released 12 years after the W650. And it was released at least 10 years, if not 11 years, after the new Triumph Bonneville. Yes. So So it kind of missed the boat on the retro bike thing. Well, that's that. Well, not only did it miss the boat, but it also had more than a decade to learn 
from the two previous retro-styled bikes. Yes. Now, if you think classic Honda, and you think iconic Honda, what do you think of? What is the one bike you think of? The CB750. Exactly. And now there's a little bit of difficulty because, you know, CB is a designation and 750 and, you know, you've got the CB designation and you've got the the number, which is the displacement. So it's a little tricky to come up with an original term as a, as the retro, you know, as the, the neo retro model designation. It's a little bit difficult, but you also had a CB900. You also had a CB1000 and the CB1000C and the CB750F and the CB900F. On top of that, you still got the CB1000F, which is a completely different modern bike, but it's not... A classic. It is. It, it. It's not a. It is not a recreation of the CB750, which is what everybody wants, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Now, on top of that, when you really look at this bike, this bike is now. Well, the original was what sixty-seven. It came out in twenty eleven. So this bike is uh, 44 years after the original seven CB750. Right. Now you would think that with some modernization, you could have something that was similar in style, but maybe a little bit lighter, a bit more compact, that kind of replicated the style but brought some modernization into it. But this bike is 20 pounds heavier than an original CB750. That's pretty criminal that it's that heavy. Especially when, if I do realize now that as much as everyone has heard how iconic and how important the CB750 was, Mm -hmm. if you haven't seen an original CB750 in person, you would be forgiven for not realizing how gigantic that bike is. It's large and it's wide. It is crazy wide. It's just, you know, it's full figured. It's pleasantly plump. Like it, like, you know, it's not ugly because it's large, you know, sort of like, well, it's going on a different tangent. Well, okay, no, what's look, her name? What's her name? Look, she, she, the, the, with the big voice. If you've been on a Tinder date and you got tricked with the whole holding the, the you know, the, the high angle selfie yeah. on Tinder and then you met the girl in person and you realized that she was a good 40 pounds heavier than her Tinder profile picture made mm-hmm. her out to be. 
you would be forgiven for well, you would understand that the CB750 is many times larger than all of. I've lost the words again. Look, um, I was going to say the CB750 is like Adele. Definitely large, but not to the point of being necessarily that unattractive. But you forgive it because deep down, she's got fucking chops. And I think that says a lot of things about the CB750 as well. Okay. It's going to be a lot of editing here. It's true, but... <laughs> If you look at a lot of the old pictures, whereas the CB eleven hundred is a little bit more like um, Aaron Neville. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> here's here's I can keep going down that road. So like Aaron Neville again, a little large. You're aware that technically what Aaron Neville is doing is okay. It, it's fine, but is it really speaking to your soul? I don't know, right? And, you know, whilst there's a whole lot of throwback going on with what's happening, like, it's, it's a little too much modern twist. It's not, like, cause it, because it has a double cradle frame like the CB750 did, right? It's got an air-cooled inline four like the CB750 did. And it's got chrome fenders like the CB750 did. Which, and the same suspension, well, yes. the same everything. It's just only mildly updated. And it doesn't well, hit it's, that it's perfect very balance. Of, if, no, here's the thing. It is very similar in that an alien that had no concept of light or culture or communication or intelligence or any other such thing made an organism that consisted entirely of a fat-based cell body and water and said, hey, this is 5% glycogen and 70% water and 0.1% iron. This is basically a human. Like, yeah. okay, no. It's right. it's got all the requisite components, but it's not the same thing. So as an example, when they first released this bike in um in twenty eleven. Yes. This was the the double cradle frame, it was a bit heavier. It was still like an eleven hundred and twenty cc motor. Right. Which is, you know, basically Almost, you know, it's like 60-70% larger. Yes. And at the same time, it was a one and a half inch larger wheelbase. And they did all of this and they also made it a four into one exhaust system. Right. Which is a big clue for what they thought they were going for and a big clue to what this is failing to achieve. Right, because if you want to go iconic CB750, which is what everybody wants, mm -hmm. which is what everybody wanted out of the the new Triumph Bonneville, what a lot of people wanted out of the 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 W650, is the iconic look with 
basically modern machining. People weren't even asking for fuel injection at the time. They weren't asking for fuel injection. They weren't even asking for much more power. In fact, people were a little bit pissed that that uh that that triumph had put fake carburetors more than a little bit pissed <laughs> people are still upset about it there right. are much more people upset that it has fake carburetors than people who think it's cool that it has fake carburetors right right and yet triumph continues to do that it's really strange to me well, that's just an example of how how wide open this market is. Yeah, because everything from the Z900 RS to the XSR, they are all like different levels of how faithful they are to the bikes that they're sort of based on or the names that they're bringing back. But what all those other bikes do is they blend enough of the old look with modern technology and performance or just going straight up re uh, like faithful recreation of the old but with the modern machining, right? Right. Now here's and this this is really a big problem is when you really look at all the numbers on the CB1100. It's a really cool bike. It's it's a little bit larger and it's heavy, which, you know, you can look at that as oh, it's not nimble, it's not sporty which is not what the bike is going for, but with the longer wheelbase and respectable horsepower around, you know, just shy of 90 horsepower and with just shy of 70 foot pounds of torque, it's going to have really smooth handling. It's classically styled, but it's kind of that Neo retro with a bit, a bit more angular classic styling and it all kind of comes together and you you look at it and it's you know it's very similar to a Triumph Thruxton. Yeah. It's kind of meeting that same market. But the real problem is that that's a cool concept on its own, but what Honda has done is that Honda has decided that oh, we've got the CB1100. That's our classic bike. And now we don't have to do any other classic bikes. So if you used to own a CB350, which a lot of people did. Yep. If you used to own a CB550F, which a lot of people did. Or a CB400F. Or a CB750 or a CB750F. Or a 504. Right. Which... Covered so many people, which just dominated the, the the smaller capacity market as well as the sport market for so long. Honda decided, oh, well, we made the CB1100. We've got the classic market covered. We've ticked the box. We're done. Yeah. Right. So what they could have done was actually make a CB750 it would have been trickier to make it within that engine size, right? I mean, it could have been like anywhere from 709 to 787 or something, and they could still just call it the new CB750, right? It doesn't matter that no, much. No, they could have taken the, CB, the, the, the CBR650F motor, which is already bored out, 
and bore it out even more. And it could have been an absolute dog. It doesn't matter. As long as it looked the part. Right. Well, how much... When you consider that the original CBR was just over 500 pounds. Yeah. And you think about the torque and the horsepower it put out. It would not matter what motor you bored out or shrunk down. You would beat that motor in in horsepower and torque. It's true. Because like the Bonneville, you know, people associate bon- old Bonneville 650s with being fast, even though they actually weren't. And the new Bonneville at much more displacement at like 800 and something, I was only still doing like high 40s in horsepower, right? Uh, no, it's like 67, 68. Oh, I didn't realize it was that good. Well, still, well, 67, like 68, it's almost that nine- happens to be how much a CB750 was making, right? Well, it's almost 900 cc's at this point. Well, right, but the the first gen, right? Yeah. And well actually aren't they just going to like all twelve hundreds now pretty soon? Or haven't they already? It doesn't matter. They're re- well no, they released the the Thruxton, which is the twelve hundred CC liquid cooled. And cafe and all that stuff. But which anyway. is also not impressive numbers. But it's also a parallel twin. Yeah. The point is is that yeah, this bike, because Honda is just going, Oh, that's it. They could take, for example, the Honda Rebel platform and that motor and make a, a, a UJM thing out of it. And it would be yet another flavor that they could sell that platform in their retro package and sell a shit ton of them. And it would be way cooler than this bike because it would accomplish everything this bike's trying to do at a much lower price point. Well, here's where I'm really actually... There are people... There are old dudes lined up around the block to buy monkey bikes. Yeah. There are there are plenty of those dudes who would easily spend a couple grand more for a version of the Rebel 500 that looks like a 504. Well, here's the other thing, and this is what really pisses me off. About this bike more than anything else. And really pisses me off about Honda. Is that when you look at what Honda has done. Where they've made their market and what they do. All of the high performance Honda motorcycles. Mm -hmm. Are all American motorcycles. They're all American market motorcycles. Yeah. When you think about you know the Honda Super Cub. Honda didn't even sell the Honda Super Cub in the U.S. because that was small potatoes. I mean, it was well, a no, lot... No, they did sell no, the Super Cub. Well, no, they, well, they did for a long time, but there's been like, what, a 28-year stretch where they didn't sell it? At least, yeah. Right. But that wasn't the point. And when you look at where Honda in their motorcycle division made all their money... It's all in Southeast Asia. It's in in India and in China. But, yeah, it's everywhere. But where they've made their brand is in America. Mm-hmm. And it was in the CB350. And it was in the CB550F. It was in the CB750. It was in the Blackbird. It was in the VFR. 
It was in the shadow, the, the shadow, the gold wing. Mm-hmm. When you think about what Honda's vision of motorcycles is and what their brand is, it's more American than it is Japanese. Yeah. And yet, when they try and go back and they release a retro bike, they can't find a place to fit the icon and the vision of the 750 in it. And that's criminal. It's true. When Yamaha is having a great go of bringing back the XS650, which was just the Bonneville wannabe. Right. Even though it was technically a better bike just because of the build quality alone, it still played second fiddle to the Bonneville. But the CB750 is the bike that fucking killed the Bonneville. Right. The CB750 is the Pontiac GTO of classic bikes. Like by all by all standards today, is it all that powerful or fast? No, but at the time, good God, it was crazy fast. And it's big and it's beefy and it's chunky and it's muscle. Like it's the CB750 is like the original muscle bike. Like I don't know if we have a VMAX without the CB750, right? Right. And it is like I said uh, in a very early episode. Like you know, when you get a bunch of old guys around talking, you know, about bikes. It's only three minutes until someone says CB750, and it's within, you know, four minutes, either before or after. They say Aerial Square 4. Exactly, Aerial Square 4, and Vincent Black Shadow, and and all. And this is a laundry list of bikes that old guys have to talk about. And CB750 comes up first. It is the ultimate bragging rights in talking about old bikes, except for maybe the Bonneville, right? In terms of an accessible bike that everyone had that's that was accessible then and accessible now to some degree. One of the CB7 is still very accessible. You can totally buy a shitbox one for no money any day that you want. But the classic status is legendary. So why not play on it more and give us something we really, really want? When Kawasaki can have huge success with their Z900... Holy crap, Honda could have 10 times the success with some sort of new CB750. And I realize in order to bring back that name, you have to bring back the displacement. But I think there's a way to do it that everyone would be in love with because people kind of aren't horsepower obsessed anymore. Like, they're just not like they used to be. So you can kind of make it fit whatever power range you want. Well, here's the thing. You don't have to give a shit about horsepower unless it's a 250, a 600, or a 1 liter. Yeah. Those are the only bikes you have to give a shit about. Or a 16 or 17 uh, 100 cruiser. Do you? Well, it needs to make at least like high 60s horsepower and it has to make over 100 foot-pound of torque. But it does have to do that. And if it doesn't, then everyone's going to think your bike is total shit as if it's a big cruiser and it makes under those numbers. But Well, then you just translate into cubic inches and nobody can do the math. Right. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm with you. This bike 
um, I don't know what it's really for because, you know, 90, 89 horsepower, 88 horsepower, like, because it's got the big torque, you're never going to ask this bike to make that much power. What this bike does is it makes 60 horsepower really quickly is what it does. Well, what it no one's does, asking this bike to make 89 horsepower. No, what this bike does is that what it does is it makes everyone who made the jump from a 350 to a 750 and felt that increase in power, they can then go ride their ST1300. Yeah. And then they're imagining what their 750 used to be. But it's totally warped by modern technology. And they can jump on a CB1100. And because their minds have been warped by liquid cooling and fuel injection and high compression, they can then go to the CB1100. And it feels... Like their memory. Like their 750. Yeah. So yeah, rather than give us a new CB750... They're trying to create this blah recreation experience, but they're also tricking us into thinking it's that experience. But we're not even getting a four and a four exhaust system out of it. Yeah. So yeah, it's fake memories and it's bullshit. I completely agree. And they could do so much better. Very easily too, with existing platforms. Alright. Now, are we ready for best bike in the world this week i think so all right and so the best bike in the world this week is the 1974 ducati 350 desmo wait 74 desmo the first desmo Ooh. so this bike um I've said this is going to kind of be like the Kawasaki Concourse. I don't have a huge deep angle on this bike. The most amazing thing about this bike is that it will just capture you in a way that no other classic bike can capture a person. Just look at the picture that we've put in the show notes of this motorcycle and instantly you're just going to pop a huge, thick, hard boner. You want this bike instantly the way your heart desires something like a Vincent Black Shadow or an Aerial Square 4 or, I don't know, what's really, like, weird and JDM and unobtainable, like, you know, whatever that weird thing is, this just instantly goes to the top of your list. Because it's old and vintage, but even more than that, like it's really truly ultra retro in style with the 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 middleweight single category at the time. And you know, three fifty sounds small now, but that was really sort of middleweight in seventy four, right? You know, small bikes were one two fives and one seven fives. And big bikes, you know, bikes went only dared to go as big as 750 at the time really so now ducati had a 750 twin at the time but it was really sort of in more race prototype stages and they had been making desmo valve 
bikes as race prototypes since 68, I think. But this was the first time they really got it into mass production. And there was a whole rash of, you know, sort of a little bit newer technology bikes in this middleweight, you know, 300 to 400 cc sort of range at the time if you think about how a few years ago everything reset to 250s 300s and 400s like we have now in the smaller bike category it had kind of done the same thing back around this time frame so at this point the cb 350 had turned into the cb 360t and Kawasaki had the S3, their 400 two-stroke, sort of a milder option of the H2. You know, a 400 two-cylinder four-stroke rather than the ridiculous, you know, oh, no, that's the Mach 1, the Mach 2 is the uh, the Kawasaki. But anyway, they had, you know, and, and this bike was definitely not as fast as those two, but still as a single, a 340cc single, the first Desmo bike production made 24 horsepower, weighed 282 pounds dry. It Wait, revved to, yes, revved to eight or eight and a half thousand RPM just depending on your sources, what it actually did. And also, and had some really weird like tech features to it. And because it's Ducati, they were insane features. So uh, what some, what basically no bikes at this time had, this bike had electronic ignition, but still had a six volt battery system. Nice. This bike has, you know, the crazy Desmo drive, uh, Desmo valves, but it also utilizes this weird um, uh, bevel drive system, which turns into a belt system at the end. So it's kind of a half win. Like it robs power, but it made the whole Desmo system possible in the beginning. Hmm. It had a, um, it, I don't think the rear front suspension are like progressive spring. I do notice it does have a double front disc, which for a 350. It's a single in- front disc, I think. You may be looking at one that's been breathed on and like updated. Okay. In 74, it went to a uh, single piston front disc, and it had been a single leading shoe drum brake before that. Now, so again, it's very Ducati, like right from the beginning, just doing things that are awesome and innovative and things that are just living in the past and making no sense whatsoever. But this bike got way better fuel economy than anything else in its class at the time. It made um, not the most horsepower, but the most horsepower per CC at the time. And definitely had the best horsepower to weight ratio of any of these bikes at the time. And it was only like 10% more expensive, like somewhere in there. The numbers are really hard to break down. This bike wasn't sold in the States. I can only find it in like, you know, in like pounds, and not even pounds, pounds sterling, you know, like what it, um, what it was went for. And what other bikes are going for, and it's really co- it's uh, it's it was more effort than I was willing to put in on what it would like cost today. Wait, but it before, was reasonable. Is this, was this before British currency went off of the base twelve system? 
Uh, I'm not sure. 74 in the base 12 system. I'm not entirely sure. But I feel like in 74, they, they, they were still like hay pennies and shit <laughs> around, right? But, you know, shillings and all that crap. But the point is, is that it was only just a little bit more um, expensive. But a lot of people reckoned that with the much better fuel economy at like 60 miles per gallon versus the like 27 you got out of the Kawasaki S32 stroke, within about 3,000 miles, you would recover that cost just because of your fuel economy. So... Also, it does something else that, as far as I'm aware, no other Ducati has really managed to properly do, which is be economical. Yeah, be a financially preferable option. As a Ducati, that's crazy. And it's landmark because of the Desmo valves, uh, the Desmo valves. And just look at the thing. It is absolutely unbelievable to look at so i did pull up a um i don't know if you've seen this but there is actually a scrambler version of this bike and when i look at this bike this is identical to the the new ducati scrambler Yes. When you look at the tank and the silver badging across the side of the tank, mm-hmm. it's it almost feel like I mean there's a bit of a little like angular you know curve to it that's a little yes. dated, but Absolutely. The the Scrambler is based off the Scrambler version of this bike. Make no mistake. So, which I didn't even realize there was a Scrambler version of this uh, until very very recently. And, you know, we were, you know, knowing what we know about the Ducati Scrambler, we just thought, oh, to appease, you know, hipsters in a different crowd, they're going to make this Scrambler bike because Scramblers are in. Little did we know, Ducati had a history of this, and the Ducati Scrambler is them bringing something back. It's, the Ducati Scrambler is Ducati's Bonneville. Right, but, you know... In more ways than just how it's marketed, like in reality and lineage and heritage. Right. But, you know, I put a lot more attention. I put a lot more time and attention into looking over the Ducati Scrambler when it was released. And in all of the material I went through, including all of the Ducati marketing, there was no mention of the 350 Desmo. And the heritage behind the styling. No. Which is ridiculous. Of course. Because it's so fucking cool. It's so cool. This bike is sub-zero cool. With the whole cafe seat and the drop bars, the, the, the clip-ons that it came with, the weird, and the weird but it must be said, absolutely gorgeous engine. That this has. When I think of beautiful engines, you know, I'm thinking about the Aerial Square 4. It's like a really beautiful engine to look at. I'm thinking about the um, the old Bonneville 650 twin motors are just wonderful to look at. I'm thinking about, you know, I don't know, what's another beautiful engine, motorcycle engine? The um, uh, All the old Indian motors... With the really big, like curved, 
big, deeply vented heads are really great to look at. This is beautiful. Like those engines are beautiful. You know, and a bevel drive is always like a really neat looking thing. But on this one, the bevel drive is beautiful. It really is. It just comes in so close to the side of the motor and just like becomes one with it at the top. And, you know, even there's something sort of pleasing about the very simple sort of oval, unassuming uh, crank and um, transmission case at the bottom. Just the whole thing just really looks great. And the bike looks great everything about it just you look at this and it just consumes you you look at this motorcycle and you're like oh my god i uh, what would i trade to have this i know it's not that fast but it must be so satisfying to ride around town it would have to be it would have to be and uh, there's very little i wouldn't do to have one of these regardless of power. Now it's supposed to be one of the best handling bikes at the time because this was basically just a street production race bike, right? right? They had been doing prototypes, but at this point, you know, homologation and all of that, they're able to just put this out and then race it. And this thing was competitive. And that tells you how good it is because when Ducati puts it, you know, Desmode valves are still a trick for some mechanics. So yeah, in- if you if you want if you have a Ducati, if you, if you have a Ducati that's out of warranty, you have to know a Desmo valve guy, right? So imagine it's nineteen seventy something, and you don't live in Italy, and you know the, you've got this crazy Ducati Desmo bike. What are you really going to do to it to up it to race spec? I mean. Yeah. If you live in Clonilla, Wales, yeah, and yeah. and you don't know, you know, if you imagine you live in Clonilla, Wales, in like nineteen seventy eight, and you've just bought one of these bikes, and you have to find somebody without the internet, without, you know. Maybe you've gone to your local motorcycle shop and you've got one of ten copies of the you know the Italian uh, parts catalog with the you know and you've got to know a guy. Something goes wrong. You've probably got at most maybe if you're willing to travel another fifty miles, two points of contact with somebody with any measure of expertise. Who can then order parts and and get what they need and be able to do the work? Right. Like this is this is a matter of oh my valve timing's off. I can't ride my bike for four weeks. Well, I think the system was fairly good at the time. Even the pr- the point is is that let's say it's 1974 and you're the kind of guy that's doing their own cam profiles. Well, here comes Ducati with this crazy Desmo system. And all of a sudden the job becomes much more than twice as complicated overnight because you got this Desmo system. So you need extra cam lobes to make this happen. Well, no, you just kind of kind of race it as is. And it was good out of the box. So this was 
a freaking race bike you could have at the time. This was like, you know, the, the 636 isn't a great way to put it because it wasn't the absolute most powerful and fastest. But this was definitely a competitor. And it was a competitor that you could just buy and not have to do anything to and be competitive because it was so good in the corners. Which is really unducati. It's true. But anyway, it's absolutely gorgeous. It had really cool and quirky technology at the same time. It's it's um it's cafe, but it's classic, but it's new and it's also scrambler and it's it's everything you want in a motorcycle. And if you don't want one, then frankly, I don't think I even know you anymore. Listener, I haven't met yet. <laughs> I think it's fair. I thought we had something going, listener, but now you don't want a Desmo. So you know what? Why don't you just stop listening to the show? Because we don't even know you anymore, man. This bike will consume you and make you want it so deeply just by looking at it. And it will make you want it that deeply like you'll want an aerial square four or Vincent black shadow. But you know what? You don't have to pay aerial square money for one of these. Now you do have to pay a pretty sum. These are going at auction for anywhere between 10 and $15,000. Well, there you go. So, you know, there's no CB three sixty worth that kind of money. There's no Kawasaki S three. This is the perfect evidence. You haven't heard of it, and it's more than you can afford. Yeah, there you go. That is a great way to put it. All right. With that, I think we should uh, end this and go to the next segment. Okay, and we're back. So I've recently done a bunch of work to the Superhawk, right? Mm -hmm. I got it with... Like twenty four thousand. Are we gonna go straight into the Superhawk, or should we do the the Norwich first? Let, let's talk about the Superhawk. I got a little point to make about this. Okay. So I've been doing all this work to the Superhawk because I got it with like twenty four thousand miles, twenty five thousand miles in February, and it's just crossed thirty thousand miles now, right? So you know, the, I've gone through like a whole service interval with the bike, right? So I'm just doing all this stuff, and I decided, well, heck, I'm just going to do everything to it, right? And so new new chain, new sprockets, new rear tire. Oh my God, my rear sprocket and front sprocket were so worn. I just didn't even realize. Like I could fit my thumb in between the teeth on the rear sprocket. It was bad. They Those teeth were at sharp points and running my finger along them, like the very tips were beginning to bend and little bits of metal like splintering off of them. Really bad news. Like another 30 miles and I was breaking teeth easily. But, you know, whatever. I It was the original sprocket and front sprocket that came on the bike and probably the original chain too. But... You know, regardless of how long that chain had gone and everything, the point is is that I did all this stuff to it, and now it's like a whole new bike, right? Mm-hmm. 
And I'm so glad that I did it and the new tires and everything as well. The tires weren't so desperate. It's just that, you know, I got a puncture on the rear tire. I'd patched it and I got another one and it was a slow leak and I couldn't, you know, the tire was done, even though I had more miles in it. And I think there's an emotional barrier to just spending money, maybe perhaps like a moment prematurely between before you've like, you know, fully gotten the mileage out of a serviceable part on your motorcycle. And I, you know, I'm not going to get into a whole lot of cost benefit, you know, analysis on doing these things to your bike. I'm going to say that just don't wait, do it now because fitting that new part to your bike, especially if it's related to the drivetrain, like is going to make the whole thing feel so much better. And the moment you get on it and ride it and you have the security and knowing that that part is good and you've reset the clock and you've got miles to put into it, the confidence you have in the bike. And, you know, of course there's all these extra benefits where along the way, you notice other things that need done and you catch up on that stuff or you just, you know, Or you simply just wait to ride it a few weeks until you sort those things and know that you've avoided a major catastrophe or potentially avoided a major catastrophe is so satisfying. It's absolutely worth the money to do it now to enjoy every moment you're on the bike that much more, right? Absolutely. Well, it's like when I am... Because... Yeah, I had a moment on the um on the the CB1000 mm-hmm. where you know I I bought it with the original tires on it and I kept the original tires and I kept riding on it and f- to begin with it felt good but I didn't really have a good you know I had never ridden on new tires before right and I didn't really have a good gauge of how it should feel Mm-hmm. You know, the most experience I had was the TW250 that I rode, that I did my test on. Right. And then, you know, I rode it for a while, and I probably put a good 4,000 miles on it. And again, you know, I didn't know that the tires were going out, really, because I didn't really have a good gauge of what new tires felt like and what old tires felt like. But there was a point where, you know, I started riding it around and I could kind of just have that, you know, you don't really know if you're really feeling it or not, mm-hmm. where, you know, you're making a right turn and as you're putting the power on, you think, you think, you sort of kind of have this kind of phantom feel of, oh, the rear tire is just like dancing and just shifting out beneath you. Right. And you don't know if it's real or not. Yep. And everyone has these little feelings, and you think, I don't know if that's what it's doing, but it's real. Yeah. Like, you you don't, you always think like, oh, well, you know, maybe, no, it's happening. Yeah. If, if something on your bike doesn't feel normal, it's real. Yeah. May I mean there is a rare circumstance where all of a sudden you get onto a road that isn't as good condition as all the other roads you've been on recently, 
where maybe if you flew your bike in or took your bike on a train 500 miles north or south and then got onto different roads that were not maintained and there was, you know, buckling on the road or something like that or the road was warped from heat or something like that or they're just not well maintained. Unless it's some sort of situation like that. If over time, you know, it just feels weird, it's a real thing. Because you are you are so much more in tune with your bike than you really think you are. You're more in tune with your bike. Yeah, I would say that you're more in tune with your bike than you are with a pair of shoes. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot more to your bike, and you have a lot more points of interaction with your bike than your shoes. I, right now, there's a podiatrist just losing his mind. That's like, do you realize how intricate your feet are and all the different points of pressure and whatever? But yeah, um, yeah, because your whole body's involved with the bike, really. And you do. It's it's strange how how good our sense of balance is and can be, and how much you can notice that bike behaving underneath you. And yeah, you know what I'm really driving at is that. Regardless of safety, regardless of cost or value, whatever that thing is you need to do to your bike right now, just do it. Because as soon as it's done, you'll forget the money you spent and only realize the benefits. It's like going to an expensive restaurant. You can look at the menu and sort of get a little bit of a shock at how much everything costs. But as soon as you actually sit down to this really nice, well-prepared, expertly prepared meal with a good friend or a spouse or whatever, and you realize what you're enjoying, you completely forget about how much money you spent or are spending. You're just in the moment, joyfully going away at it. And Getting the service done on your bike, you know, as it needs to be done, or even prematurely, is the same sort of thing. Yeah. And and I would say, if you're if you uh, if you rode your bike and you put a good number of miles on it, and you put it away for the winter, and you think, oh, I've still got a thousand miles left on these tires. And it's, you know, spring's coming up. Just get the tires replaced. Yeah. When you think about the number of cents per mile you're spending and the confidence you can have in those tires and how much you enjoy it, I would rather cut 20 to 30% out of the lifespan of those tires and just have complete confidence in those tires going into spring. Yeah. And if you are worried about the money, you know, changing your front tire is something you are well capable of absolutely nailing your first try with like 25 bucks worth of tools from Harbor Freight. Like, absolutely. I know that because we've done it. Now, rear tires, I'm not a fan of changing myself. Not don't really going to go there. I pull the wheel off and I take it to a pro who swaps it out in 15 minutes. 
but um, it, tires are something I haven't really waited on in the past, but um, chains and sprockets are something I've waited on in the past. And I, I guess I did a bit this time as well. But, oh, but you know, the, the reason I bring this up is it's not like, you know, oh, I've waited on maintenance my whole life. No, that's not how it's been. It's just right now with the Superhawk, I just did everything to it. I mean, everything. And the most noticeable differences were the chain, the sprockets, and the tires just more, you know. And, and everything is better on it. Everything. Like I said, I've just been doing everything to it. But... Those things especially, uh, it feels like it has 10 more horsepower. It feels like I've got uh, everything. It just tips in better. It just does everything better. I will just throw in right now, um, if you've been riding since early spring, and if you haven't really done this and you kind of treat your, your motorcycle the same way that most people treat their cars these days, Next time you go and you fill up your tank, just go check your tire pressure. Yeah. They're, they're, because as much as we talk about how much having new tires makes your bike feel brand new, just having your tires inflated to the correct pressure will do the exact same thing if you're not doing that already. It That's true as well. That's true too. There's so many mechanics that'll like it'll tell you like you know they'll do a simple job on a bike and then as it's leaving the shop they'll air the tires up and then the customer's like I don't know what you did to this thing but oh man it's so much better now <laughs> and the number one thing they did was put the right tire pressure and like there's no end of mechanics that say that and that's a story a lot of people have heard before but you know. It could be a lot of different things. It could be like wheel bearings, you know, that make all the difference for someone. It could be, you know, new brake lines, you know, can make a huge mm-hmm. impact on the way, you know, your oh, bike yeah. behaves. So whatever that thing is, I just want to say, just as a general reminder, don't wait. Because you might be worried about spending the money or the hassle or all of that. And whether you send it to the shop to have it done or you do it yourself the satisfaction of riding your bike goes up so much more. Even if something that can feel as boring as brakes are to some people, man, when your brakes are really, really actually correct, you're just, it, 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 it's exciting. You're just like, Holy crap. I didn't think this thing could be, you feel like you're on this like race spec, crazy machine. You know, when you have brand new pads, new fluid, mm-hmm. new lines, man, brakes, even brakes that, you know, people like, you know, moto journalists have complained about on a model. When they're all new, man, they work great. Well, just the travel in like my levers, how that's changed, putting fresh pads on. I'm like, whoa, this thing feels so tight, you know? Well, I, I want to rail on moto journalists, but I will save that for another time because yeah, I moto gotta... journalists could be a whole episode for us. We but, should do that episode. But I, I do want to go back just one little step because you know, if you bought a bike and you have and you don't have anyone around you who knows anything about bikes, you could this could all go straight past you because you got no frame of reference. 
And a point we should make is if you've gone out and bought a bike, first of all, when you go out and you buy a bike, you should have somebody with you who knows what they're talking about and can evaluate a used bike. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you should have somebody with you who can walk you through taking an unknown bike and getting it into roadworthy condition. Yes. And in terms of making sure all the cylinders are firing, making sure the tires are good, making sure the discs are good, making sure the pistons are good and your pads are good, getting your brake lines bleeded, and making sure that the bike is perfectly roadworthy and, you know, to within 95% of what a qualified mechanic will do. Yeah. And you need to have that person with you because you need to you need to feel what you need to know what the bike feels like when it is in ideal operating conditions. Because you otherwise you don't know what you're missing out on and if you don't know what you're missing out on and you don't know where it should be, if you don't have that frame of reference, you don't know how the bike should feel. You don't know when things are going wrong because otherwise it'll feel like you're, you know, it'll feel like your first bicycle on training wheels and everything feels weird and awkward and terrible and, yeah. and you don't know what's going on. Yeah. Okay. All right. That. That's kind of all I wanted to say there, but now, like, moving on, we've got a podcast bike update. All right, the uh, the podcast bike. So what happened today, Swiggy? <sighs> okay. So, so I came up here to Greeley. This is also why I sort of sound a little weird because I've got a lot of empty space behind me because this is a remote podcast. Yeah. Um, so I brought all the gear up here to Greeley because MotoGP has gone above and beyond the call of duty in terms of commuting and making recordings and interviews happen. And... On the way up, I had a little bit of an incident with the Norge. Go on. So, a few miles north of Brighton, coming up 85, I was traveling along, everything was, uh, everything was peachy, and it was a little bit weird, and I didn't really have time to react, because what happened... Was not the car in front of me, but the car in front, like one car up. Mm -hmm. So there's a car between us, a pickup, had a little piece of lumber. And then, you know, it was like a two by four, about two feet wide, fall off the back of the truck. And 
it was the weirdest, the the most freakish accident I have ever witnessed occurred, where it fell onto the road. I could just about pick out it falling off the road, looking over the car in front of me, mm-hmm. and it fell in such a way that if you imagine like a one and a half to two foot long like two by four yeah landing perpendicular in front of you Mm -hmm. i didn't really have time to dodge it and my wheel my front my front tire hit it in exactly the wrong spot like right over the left hand side okay i didn't really know like what was going on it was like i didn't i didn't even see it in slow motion like you see most accidents happen yeah it would just kind of just it just all of a sudden it just happened and that was your reality yeah where my front tire hit the left hand side of it and i can only imagine that it just spun the whole piece around and just pointed it at the perfect angle and launched it into my brake lever. Yeah, this is where things turn south. So, you know, looking... And so, all all I really saw was, oh, this piece of wood. Oh, front, front suspension compressed. Oh, all of a sudden, my right foot really fucking hurts. Oh, Jesus Christ, what happened? And, you know, there were a lot of different thoughts running in my, running through my head. It was all sorts of unknowns. And I was just like, oh, what happened? Oh my God, this fucking hurts. Jesus Christ. You know what? I'm just gonna, I just got done touching up the paint on these fairings. Yeah. And I, I need to know what's happened. So I pull over and as I'm pulling over, I put my hazards on, I turn over, turn off. And I go to hit the the brake, the front and the rear brake, and all of a sudden it's oh, where's my rear brake? It's it's not there anymore. And it's like oh well, shit, it's a good thing I pulled over. Yeah. <laughs> and again, if if weird now, shit happens, pull over, take assess what's what's happened. Right now, the thing is that your brake lever being busted is an issue but something deeper and darker has happened here right so in proper italian fashion there is no bracket that secures around the frame to hold the brake lever on to the frame to get leverage against it to actuate the piston there's a tab on the frame that the the brake lever actuates against similar to how you would mount your engine to the frame of the motorcycle yes so when i look at the brake and see what's happened the whole system is in place the whole assembly is in there hanging on by a cable that goes to the master cylinder which is also really but we'll let that slide but yeah essentially this 2x4 that has slammed into my brake lever 
has essentially sheared a part of the frame off of the bike. Yes. So that's technically a write-off and a total on the Norge. Well, here's where it gets really complicated because, you know, if you, if you, if you compromise, you know, the triple tree or many other parts of the frame, you know, it's kind of an immediate write-off. Yeah. Which is bullshit because I got this bike at a really good price. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, I could get somebody who knows how to weld aluminum to just weld it back on. But if the fact that the frame is welded back together affects the price, you know, it's not a salvage title. But if it affects the price more than my deductible, which is $250, then am I going to... Just all of a sudden going to lose a shit ton of money trying to hold on to this bike. It really depends how much you love the bike. Right. Like, if if the point is, is that this is your go-to motorcycle that you can live with forever, then I say it's worth going for the aluminum weld. But if your goal is to just continue to keep trying to buy and own as many different bikes as possible, this is a perfect moment to cut bait because you might even profit off of this one because the blue book is so much higher than what you paid for it. Right. It's a tough call. But also, you're thinking of getting rid of the W650 as well. So well, here's the thing. I found out more than a month ago that the because I had been riding riding it so rarely. Well, because you know it was cold. It was yeah. winter, and we're only just getting into summer. And you know, I I went to ride the W six fifty one and realized, oh, the rear tire picked up a nail, and it's been more than a month since then. And I still haven't gotten around to replacing the rear tire on the W650. Yeah, because the Norge is everything you want in a riding experience. Right. And it's not because I don't love the W650, because the W650 is great, and I love everything about it and what it does. But the fact that I'm not willing to go get the rear tire replaced and not put the effort in to do it tells me that I've gotten everything out of the W650 that I need to, and it's time to move on. Now, here's my opinion on this one, and it's a little weird, because I love the Norge. I think it's a wonderful bike, and um, it's gonna. it might be difficult to see it go. But the only thing that I love more than shopping for a motorcycle is shopping for two motorcycles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. This could be a really great one-two punch of discovery here. And now, now there's a couple, there's a couple different ways to go about this, right? Because the strategy has been, keep that one bike you know under the podcast bike rules right one bike is your standby go-to that you keep the other bike 
you're not allowed to renew the insurance on must be sold, right? You, you're only allowed to renew the insurance on one bike per year. Mm-hmm. That's actually a better definition for it than the way we've said it in the past, right? Every year you can renew the insurance on one motorcycle. Other one must be swapped out, right? Right. Well, so you get a whole year to decide between two motorcycles this way, for starters. And here's the other thing. You can look for which is the go-to bike first or which is the stupid bike first, right? You could purchase two insanely practical motorcycles and try to decide which one is better. Or, it would be really too. It would be two really stupid motorcycles, right? Or go for two really stupid motorcycles: the Vincent Black Shadow and the Aerial Square Four, at right. the same time. Exactly. <laughs> like what, what you could buy, you could get you. You could buy like the stunted out Jixer Seven Fifty, and like I don't know um, <sighs> the Super Black. Yeah, or uh, VMAX or whatever. You could get two stupid bikes at the same time and justify it, knowing that one of them is going after a year. And then after that, like, you know, search for more practical motorcycle begins. Or just go for two insanely practical things, right? Maybe try to find a high-mileage Stelvio and a BMW, you know, K1200 model of some description. And then maybe after six months, you know, when it gets cold, it's the middle of the winter, and it's a great time to try to yep. look for something stupid, then pick that up. There's a lot of different ways this can go. Here's the problem. There are a fair number of people who know me at this point in my apartment complex and realize, like, what I'm doing with the balance of motorcycles I have. If I had a Stelvio and, like, a 1200 RT at the same time, just the looks of disgust I would have. <laughs> like, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would be able to pull that off. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's that, you know, but those are two bikes that are more similar to the Norge. But, you know, the bike that ticks all the things that the Norge does doesn't necessarily have to be that, right? So you could do something like maybe, let's say... I should point out that the Norge is not in the grave at this point. No, it's true. But I'm just exploring this idea of writing it off. Because in writing it off, you potentially increase your budget for the next one. Which, you know, a few, a couple thousand dollars more opens you up to a few more different options. Well, here's what I need to do. I need to find out. Because technically, by the books, the frame is compromised. Yes. So if I wanted there to... There is no insurance fix for this. That you can, They cannot... There is no mechanic that can just buy a replacement part to put onto it. Right. There's no way under insurance fixed guidelines this work can be done because they can't guarantee, you know, a weld. Right? Is it worth just putting the claim in and finding out if... Well, it's a question of, is the write-off value worth more than what I paid for the bike? And on top of that, 
does that affect my insurance? And if it doesn't, then the no-brainer is I have to ride off the bike. Yeah, I, I guess you could probably call, you know, your insurance and have a hypothetical conversation. Go now. I want to ask you a question: If the frame of this bike was to be damaged in some minor way, you know, what 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 could be? And well, I don't know. The person you get on the phone might not be able to tell you that. You may have to explore this pretty deeply. I don't know. It's a lot of decisions. It's it's tricky. You know what you could do? You could go into just a random like State Farm office under the guise that you're thinking of picking up their insurance and ask them a lot of hypotheticals about this situation again and again <laughs> until you figure out the information you need and then just leave. <laughs> well, I don't have my insurance through State Farm, actually. But... That's what I'm saying. Go somewhere you don't have insurance under the guise oh, that you're shopping yes. around. It's a douchebag move where you just waste an hour of someone's perfectly good time where they could be giving service to a State Farm person. But I wouldn't do that to State Farm because State Farm is kind of a – it's agency-based and it's very yeah, – everyone's kind of working for themselves but working through this pool. Yeah. You know. I would call in and waste a progressive agent's time any day of the week. <laughs> yeah. But if it's like a branch style where it's like, oh, we've got this, we're just tapping into this pool and it's almost sort of franchise based, that's, that's a little bit of a dick move. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it would achieve your goals. Make no mistake. Anyway, so the other route is you don't write it off and you get you get the frame welded. Well, then I think you're married to the bike until it blows up. It depends on what Or it depreciates enough that it just doesn't matter what you right. do to it. Which is like probably... Five, four... Eight years? No, it's like four years. Okay. But in the meantime, like, I don't know. I feel like we're on a quest to own and ride more different kinds of bikes by then. Right. So... And that's where... It's a tricky one. It's a real tricky one. I, I think you just got to just you know just think about it some more, and what feels right will will come to you. Because I love that bike too. It is a wonderful bike, and whatever it's replaced with, I think will have to be something that ticks all the boxes of enough performance to be fun, the long range touring comfort, all the features, the ABS, everything, the amazing suspension, the amazing suspension, and it's going to have to have another weird like X factor to it. Like the Nords does. It's got to be offbeat. It's got to be unusual. Yeah. I mean, there is also another scenario where you might profit enough that you could just shop around for another good deal on a Norge. You might have to wait a minute for one to come up, but you, you probably could find another. I don't know. It's a tricky one. It's tough. All right. Now, in also other news, other Italian motorcycle news, we have just been gifted a free Ducati monster. 
<laughs> I should put a break in. All right. Okay, and we're back, right? Uh-huh. All right. So I should mention that it's actually a different day. Uh, we've we've magically jumped in time, you know, some some hours here because wow, it's been a trick with my work schedule to get this episode done. And we were recording late into the night. In fact, we recorded a whole bunch and. Our father was just snoring in the background, making everything completely unlistenable. So you don't hear any snoring. You're just going to have to thank us because we've pushed just we've redone everything essentially up to this point. And um, we would have redone it last night, but I actually fell asleep whilst we were recording because <laughs> I've just been working that much. Okay, so we're going to talk about MotoGP and Lorenzo specifically, right? Mm-hmm. So I just want to say my favorite thing here, just, you know, spoiler alert, it shouldn't be since we're almost up on the next GP, right? Is it Assen this weekend? I believe so. Yeah. So <clears throat> Lorenzo won again. He won in Lorenzo fashion again. Smooth, maybe the most perfect metronomic lap times he's ever produced, right? Mm-hmm. And I am tickled pink I, that everyone has immediately turned against him already. You know, it was like, oh, after 18 months of doing nothing, everyone's like, oh, it was really fun to see Lorenzo win again. Oh, yeah. And I think even Broda GP mentioned they could do it like a, he could do it like two or three more times and they would still be on board and then it would get old. Apparently, no. Lorenzo only had enough goodwill with the public for them to support him through one win. So, and we're over this now. Yeah, I, I still think it's great. I still think it's interesting, and it's it's going to be interesting to see how long he can keep it up. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of him starting the season from nowhere and then becoming a title contender, you know, if he pulls off something again, you know, if Lorenzo pulls off a podium at least in Assen and Marquez crashes out, then that makes him a title contender. I don't think anyone's quite ready to say he's a title contender yet, but he's in like the top five, isn't he? Isn't he like tied with Dovey or close to it now for points? Well, Dovey's pretty far back now. Yeah, he is. It's, it's but, all kind of it's all falling apart. I mean, the closest right now is actually Rossi. Right, but I think like the next four, you know, behind, you know, Marquez is right out in front, and everyone else is fairly close behind with you know Dovey and Lorenzo being. The, the very, very bottom of anyone that could even possibly hope of having a chance of winning the championship, right? But I would say if, like I said, if Lorenzo puts up at least another podium in this next race and Marquez falls out, that I think that kind of keeps Lorenzo alive as a potential contender, right? Yeah. And I don't understand the mindset of anyone that doesn't want more championship title contenders, yeah. It only makes it more interesting. So it's it's weird that people's hatred of Jorge Lorenzo is so strong that they're willing to have the sport suffer just to spite him. Or they will begrudge him wins even if it's actively making the the sport, the show, the races that much better. 
That is a level of hatred I don't think we've seen for a rider since, like, Max Biaggi. It's impressive. It's really impressive. So when is this moment that Lorenzo's finally just going to just become upset with the fans and become this crazy, uh, I don't know, anti-hero maybe? I don't know what you would call it, but, you know, besides just a straight-out villain, when is that moment going to be? You know, because he was really becoming the villain at the end of last year when it seemed like he was actively doing things to fuck up Dovi. But now he's really just making his own path. And whether he gets into title championship, you know, contention or not, is kind of a relative. What he's doing is, in his own stubborn way, showing that, you know, he can do pretty much anything on the track when he when he really wants to, when he really gets things sorted out. Now, I think the main issues he's going to have is that I'm pretty sure we're down for two, at least two more race days with rain. And that's going to throw him off. Yeah, he's not very good in the rain. But, you know, like, it's if it does rain, then Jack Miller is going to win. Or Petrucci or... Um, what's his name? Crutchlow. You know, guys that are good in the rain will just take a surprise. You know, Marquez isn't going to win in the rain. Well, he definitely won't because if he's ahead, he's going to try and manage. He's going to manage the risk. And then, you know, somebody like Zarko will pass him and then he'll just say, it's not worth chasing. We would, we would hope so, but we'll see, won't we? Anyway, I, I, I don't think anything's that much interesting in you know gp right now except maybe miguel Oliveira, who's definitely showing some amazing things on the ktm a frame different from the calyx this goes further to support my theory that um oh what's the company called um uh, mv augusta mv augusta yeah the lightning bolts right mv augusta right the continued improvement of the KTM with the Honda 600 inside of it is amazing when you think about it. They jumped into that class, what, they've been in it two years now, right? Mm-hmm. And there's they're getting wins everywhere. They're getting podiums everywhere. You know, even... Um, even um, oh, my God. I can't remember shit today. South African guy. Brad Bender. Even Brad Bender is pulling off like sixth place at worst, right? Mm-hmm. So mm, I, I don't see I, I don't see why the Calyx's days aren't numbered. The Calyx frame, I think, is going to become very irrelevant quickly next year. I know these motors can be moved around inside the frames, but I don't know what their limits are on doing that. Does Moto Two have unlimited development? Um, I think so, but I think it's, it's the case that there's so little that you're actually allowed to swap out that matters that if you can afford it, go ahead. That sort of thing. Well, there's so much that's, um, there's so much that's supplied to you that you have to use. Like you have your choice of, you know, four engines you have, and everyone uses the same one. You have your choice of, um, a frame. You know, you can basically pick, like, three different frames. You're getting the same... Everyone's getting the same tires. You know, what can you change? Your your wheels? You know, you can mess with your suspension a bit. 
Like, there's not a lot. You can't mess with any electronics. Right, but if they're making new frames that can, you know, because I, I, I don't think these frames allow you to, like, move the engine inside of them, you know, and it's the same frame, right? I think they have to make a new frame to hold the engine in a different position. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I think MV August is going to have a competitive frame next year, as will KTM, and I think the Calyx is just going to suck. You know, the 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 frame only matters, you know, and as as how it's compared to the engine, how it holds the engine, how it places that weight, and then on top of that, how it flexes or doesn't flex based on the power that that engine puts out. Right. And this engine, this this Calyx frame is just designed for the Honda Six Hundred, and it's the best possible thing for that. And uh, I don't know. How, how quickly, you know, how much is Calyx working on on uh, adop- adapting to that triple? That seven is it seven fifty seven two five seven six five seven six five. That's such a weird displacement, but okay. That seven six five triple. How much is that being adopted adapted to it? I don't know. I really don't. I think it's up in the air, and I think it's very possible that MV Augusta and KTM are just gonna destroy. I think, I mean, Calyx is like a weird, small little company, right? They don't, they're just a sort of boutique race parts thing. I don't, I don't know how much they have to just from year to year develop frames for different bikes and engines. I know it's like all they do, but I don't know. It just seems like MV Augusta or KTM especially just have the resources to make a different frame much more quickly. And I don't know, they got different things to go with. Like, I don't know. That's that's what I'm choosing to believe. I think it's gonna make Moto two so much more fun. I think the you know, the Calyx Cup days are gone. Um let's see here. You know, talking about racing, uh, I've been thinking a lot about Moto America. And you know, it's all free on YouTube now. And Sadly, I'm not totally caught up with everything right now because I've just been working like I've been working insane hours lately. There's a certain large event in northern Colorado all this week and last week and next week that I'm very heavily involved with and it's sucking up all of my time. But probably by the time we put our next episode out or two episodes from now, I'll be completely caught up in everything. But the most important thing is that Moto America is all on YouTube. Anyone can watch. You don't need a subscription. You don't need anything, right? And I think this is the whole race on, uh, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday sort of thing. But the nice thing is, is that in this case, it doesn't matter who wins, right? Right. None of these manufacturers are really looking. None of these manufacturers are really looking to increase their sales based off of Moto America. I mean, maybe Suzuki is a little bit, which is weird. Like Suzuki really, really puts a lot into Moto America as compared to other factories. But, you know, I've been thinking recently that a person doesn't necessarily have to be a motorcycle or a motorcycle rider a writer of any kind to be into Moto America. 
how many NFL fans are there and how many NFL fans play football? Like none. Well, yeah. I mean, if you just went out to, you know, if you went out to the, the nosebleed section at a Broncos game and you just got a random selection of 100 people, how many of those people, if you asked them to, could throw a spiral? None. And it's it's going to be under 40%. Right. But why are people into NFL? Because there's a story to follow, because there's a drama, right? If you think, and this gets into conspiracy theory territory, right? But a lot of people were upset with the NFL, you know, last year and the year before because all these scandals and these players, you know, beating their wives or getting arrested with guns or doing drugs or doing whatever and taking a knee and the NFL seeming to not do that much about it. I mean, just think about Michael Vick, right? Dude was torturing animals. It was caught a dog doing fighting it. ring. Exactly. It's like one of the cruelest, most awful things you can do to animals as a human being. Like, wasn't just like, it would have been better if he was just catching squirrels and then trying to do like, you know, surgery, like no anesthetic <laughs> surgery, like pointlessly on them, you know, and to see how many like organs he could remove until the thing died, right? Like something really fucked up and sick like that would have been better. But he had this whole system of fighting dogs and breeding dogs for this and torturing the dogs when they lost. Like, he had institutionalized for himself a systematic way to hurt all these dogs, right? That's pretty bad. Like, that says a lot about you as a person. But I, I he went to jail for a little while and then he was back in. And no one really, and you know, and like people would say, like, I'd be like, how is this real? Like, how is this guy allowed to play again? And people would be like, oh, but he can play, man. And I'm like, I don't know if that forgives. I'm, I'm very excited to hear how this ties into Moto America. <laughs> okay. It does. It does. So the idea is, is that I think with all these player scandals and everything, the NFL was sort of willing to lose a certain amount of fans to retain 90% of them long-term. Mm-hmm. And what they've been doing is having these scandals, letting them come Just up, keeping a little bit of drama and keeping, keeping the drama, keeping the personalities. Like I don't watch football, but I know the entire Michael Vick story. Right. I had never heard his name before he was, you know, caught with these dogs. I mean, that was years ago, but like, you know, but there's still, there's some other you know I can't recall many other players and things and scandals right now. But you know if you just mention the names of some of them, I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that from the news and whatever. It's engaging, right? And I'm not saying that Moto America needs to stir up you know artificial drama or you know try to find racers who are into abusing animals. I don't think that's a pretty good move. But what I do think is that Moto America needs to find a way to highlight the characters in the racing, mm-hmm. right? You know, the racing in MotoGP is better than the racing in World Superbike, but not that much better proportionally to how much more I enjoy MotoGP than World Superbike, right? World Superbike still has excellent racing. The problem is I don't know who these guys are 
nearly as much as I know who the GP racers are. Dorna does a great job of this, like on my phone constantly interviews with writers, right? You know, little exposés about things writers are doing in their off time. I mean, think about, you know, when Jakob Kornfile made that jump, right? Instantly we found out that he was the moto surfing champion, right? We, we right. know we get these details about these guys. We get these, these little drama stories about them that are sort of outside of the racing. We know who they are. And there's a very intentional system designed to highlight that to us. And it keeps us engaged with, you know, it's not like, Oh, there's a red bike and a blue bike racing. Oh, I really hope the blue one wins. It's not that, you know, you're connected to the personality that's riding that bike around. And the NFL does that very well also. Now, they go really overboard with it to the point that they're willing to just forgive insane crimes just to stir up controversy. Yeah. But, you know, and I understand that this takes money to do, but I don't know. Like, we'll, we'll have to ask. Well, we might have a very inside Moto America person on the show soon. We'll see. I don't want to give it away because it might not happen, but I bet it will. Anyway, we'll have to ask them about what the resources are towards the publicity of the writers on all of this, you know, because it doesn't matter if that writer wins or loses, right? If it's a losing battle, if it's an underdog story that even doesn't pan out, if it's a tragic story to some degree, that still does something, right? I mean, you know, the one of the best stories that came out in Moto America was the whole Josh Heron thing with his bike not making it there and then him taking his his own R1S around the track. That really got more people excited about it. That I don't think that created any motorcycle racing fans from whole cloth, but I think it did attract some people from World Superbike and MotoGP over to it and go, Oh, you know, there's some crazy things happening here. There's some drama happening here. This might be worth following. So I, I, I don't think you need to be a motorcyclist in order to watch it. Just like, you know, I soccer is popular because everyone has access to soccer as a game, right? There's no equipment. It's socks, shin pads, shoes, a ball, right? You don't even need a goal. You just need two objects to mark as a goal, right? You can play it in the street. You don't have to even have the actual gear. You can just play it in regular shoes if you really want to, right? All you really need is a ball, right? And a soccer ball is not an expensive item. Nor does it have to be a soccer ball. Yeah, it could be an old cat's head. But, (laughs) you know... Uh, it's true. It doesn't have to be a soccer. So every, everyone can do it. And that's why soccer is so popular. It's not really that great of a game. It's kind of cool right now in this part of the country to be into soccer just because it's European. We've definitely lost our Brazilian listener. Yeah. Sorry, (laughs) but it's not really that great of a game, but it becomes that great for people to watch because, you know, they soccer is very good about putting these, uh, these personalities up front. Right. Well, there's that. And there's also, you know, if that's all you have access to, or if that's, you know, you know, if you're a bunch of kids with no money and one of you's got a soccer ball, you know, that's what you do all day. And now like the whole sport is tied into your childhood 
and everything. And that's where it gets the story from. I just had an amazing idea. So you know how you can't like every other issue of the sun, which is a tabloid newspaper in the UK for all our non UK listeners about every other episode has some sort of outrageous story about a soccer player. Moto America needs to strike up a deal with the national Enquirer. <laughs> okay. Because uh, what could it possibly take to pay them some money to get some print, right? The National Enquirer is still in every grocery store, right? And is that a whole lot of visibility? I don't know. But if it's free to watch on YouTube, right, you might get some, like, single parents, like, going through the line at the grocery store. And they're like, hmm, Josh Heron is three penises. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Josh Heron like burns down the White House. Like, I don't know, whatever like crazy thing it is, right? You know, Josh Heron goes 683 miles an hour, you know, in Chicago. Like, whatever, like you know, on public roads, like whatever crazy story it is, it doesn't make you know, Josh Heron is sleeping with the first lady. It doesn't matter, right? Just something insane. And people might just sort of go like, well. I don't know. I, I got an extra couple hours while the kids at kindergarten today. I might check out this race. It's on YouTube, right? I mean, you know, or the or they can just Google it, you know, the and those there's some sort of link to the race from the insane National Enquirer story or whatever. That would be a really interesting way to just drum up you know, they'd be like, well, there's this thing. There's this racing league. It already exists. Like, all the groundwork is there. You just need some really crazy sort of stuff. And, I mean, you know, they could do it once for, like, you know, an April Fool's joke or something, right? Because now everyone has to have this whole, like, corporate April Fool's thing or whatever, which is, I don't know. It sort of betrays the idea of April Fool's to me, right? Yeah. But, um. You know, not just the National Enquirer. I'm not saying like, you know, I don't think Moto America will have, you know, the pull to try to get like, you know, the Huffington Post to do more articles about Moto America. But there's got to be something that's relatively cheap that has a big bang for buck. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot that draws me. You know, just besides the fact that I'm just purely into motorcycle racing in any form, right? But, you know, you think about, you, know, you hear about this flat track stuff going on. I'm still not really following it that much, but I know that there's people out there doing it, all completely amateur, pretty much. I know there's like Indian and Harley factory teams, or I think Harley really just like pays to make the whole thing exist because Harley just needs to get something going in terms of sport. Yeah. And I, I there's, there's not a whole lot in the promotion of it though. I think they just like to be able to Harley likes to be able to claim that exists. And then they can talk about the fact that they just race in general. And then if anyone asks a deeper question, then go check this out. Right. That's sort of why they do it. Um, so they can just like put up pictures in all the dealerships of dudes on old, like 1930s enduro bikes going over Hills and people go like, what, what's going on with that? And then they can go, no, check it out. We make these bikes. Right. And 
or we sponsor, you know, we turn sportsters into these flat track things. And there you go. So for Moto America, it's a different game. It's, it's really, they need to, it's really a thing where they need to get into like, how to put it, a, a situation where content is being put in front of people's faces that aren't necessarily asking for it, right? It's advertising, but it's not just advertising that it exists. People are aware that motorcycle racing as a thing exists, right? When you tell people, oh, MotoGP is the Formula One of motorcycles, they don't go cross-eyed and not understand how that works. They get it, Right. They're just not aware that it exists at several different levels, right? When someone asked me, you know, recently why I was excited about Moto America, I said, well, if you're really into football, you're really into NCAA tournaments, right? Mm. And I said, you know, there's a, at least a couple big races on the calendar every year for Moto America that kind of equate to that, right? You know, because there's a lot of races that not all the teams can make it to. There's a lot of, you know, but there are certain races like Laguna Seca or Circuit of the Americas or whatever that are sort of the big events. You know, winning those races is kind of almost as good as just winning the season, right? It's like winning Valencia, right? If you can't win the the MotoGP championship, you at least want to win Valencia. So I think there's a way to get people directed towards those big events, and, you know, just get them watching it. And as soon as they see some crazy crashes, you know, and it to us, like, you know, the bikes leaned over at 60 degrees isn't as crazy as we used to think it was. But you know what? To a lot of people, it still is crazy. Yeah. It's not. If you can just get them into the idea, if you can get them to recognize a few key people, then it's much, much easier to get them in. So they need to hear some names before they even watch, right? That's what Valentino Rossi did for MotoGP, right? Yeah. He was such a dominant force. He was such a celebrity outside of motorcycles. You know, the cardboard cutouts of him in grocery stores and news stories about him and all these things. And, you know, those easily identifiable, you know, that Valley Yellow and the blue and the the association of his colors with those teams. People could go into a race and just instantly know one of the guys up front, right? You know and then you- as they were watching it, someone could go, oh, yeah, and that's Max Biaggi. That's the guy that he's sort of a rival with. And then they can just they could just walk into the sport and just instantly have some idea of what's going on just by knowing a couple of the guys at the front. And then there's something to sort of root for even the first time they watch. The problem with Moto America is that when you get into it, you don't know who's who. You don't know who anyone is. Right. You you can't get you can't get and there's no stakes. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I said, soccer's not that great of a game. But because everyone plays it, everyone understands how it works, and then everyone knows the players, it doesn't matter, right? Like it's all about stakes. Right. And it's a, it's just a bonus that if the sport itself is that much more exciting. I would imagine I would I would guess that there are a lot of football fans in the early two thousands who spent way more time reading about, 
watching commercials of and um, watching TV show appearances of David Beckham than actually watching him play the game. Right. Yeah, if you know who David Beckham is and you know he has a reputation that he needs to preserve, then watching any game with David Beckham playing in it has some stakes, right? You know, that's why gambling is a thing, right? Gambling imposes artificial stakes on the most boring activities of all time, right? But, but that's why it works. It just makes stakes, right? I think I heard it on the Adam Carolla show years ago. If you have a if you have two guys with crumpled up bits of paper in their office chairs and they're throwing them towards the waste paper basket, that's pretty boring. Now if one of them says $500 you miss, it's instantly the most exciting thing that has ever happened in the office, right? Now, you know, you can create like a motorcycle racing fantasy league or whatever, but it doesn't work until you know who the people are. If if you go, oh, I know who that guy is already, and I know he's sort of known by people, and people like him, and if he loses, then there's some sort of even very small stake in it for you watching it, and that's what makes it gripping. And until you can create that for people, the sport's not really going to take off. So it's all about knowing who these people are. It is. And MotoGP puts a whole lot of stock in not just who the riders are, but like what kind of people they are, what their personality is, what their personal branding is, because it draws people in. You know, I think I think that's one of the reasons Ian Oni's getting pushed out. Like, they even though he is a great rider, they they can't really brand him a way that they're totally satisfied with. I think he's very difficult to get unless you're a weirdo like us. Well, I mean, when you look at what he's done, he's won two races in the last four years. And still more than most of the grid. This is true. But besides that, the, uh, the most famous thing about him is wiping Davizioso out twice in a competitive year. Yeah. Well, and then just all the supermodels he's banging. Um, that too. Going around with no t-shirt and fur coats and, and all that craziness. It, yeah. I, he's probably the most millennial of the MotoGP riders. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, and Marquez is uh, very much a... Um, Marquez feels like... Uh, Jeff Gordon, you know, in the late nineties in NASCAR, just, you know, very clean cut, you know, trying to just bring this very corporate image to this racing sport that he traditionally is, has a lot of wild cards in it. He is very Disney, right? He's very Disney, but that works for Honda, right? And, you know, and as much as we all love Danny Pedrosa, he was very Disney as well, yeah. right? Whereas you take someone like Valentino Rossi and like he's not disney but like i don't know he's a i don't know what he would be like he's not dreamworks <laughs> he's he's something else he he's a pg13 something right he's not too he's hardcore he's a nickelodeon pg13 cartoon like if there was a if there was a ren and stimpy movie that just was a huge block but he's the lego movie 
right? <laughs> this is a really weird comparison, but he's not he's not as safe as other things, and he's just got wide mass appeal, and it, and it's and it works it works fantastic the way his public image is. So I'm cool with that. Uh, but you know, just going back to this, why don't we? Why do I only know like Gagne and Josh Heron in Moto America? Why are those? Why are those the only two writers I know about? And I only know that because I've made an effort to look into the sport, right? Except for that story of Josh Heron was such an amazing story that it really broke the mold that way. You know, why doesn't, I don't know. We're going to have to ask our, our insider guy, is there, how many people are working on this idea of finding these dramatic stories and putting them out there? Because honestly, there must be hundreds of stories like this. When you cut out the funding for a sport like this, right? Because, you know, it's not hugely funded, right? The sponsorship is, you know, a little tricky to come by. So there are guys doing all sorts of back alley fixes and, and crazy things to make this work. There are people going into debt to do this. There are people who lose everything doing it, and there's people who win everything doing it. The drama is there, right? You get a whole bunch of people together to do something incredibly expensive, very technical without a large enough budget to do it comfortably. It, you know, requires an entire week to do just to pay off in this 20 something lap race at high speeds with all this going on. The stories are there. They make themselves and if Moto America can't find these stories and broadcast them to the world, it's got to just be laziness or a lack of vision to know that they need to do it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, how many people how many people out on the track are, you know, five to six figures in debt? And if they don't win or play, make a good result... It's going to affect their sponsorship, which is going to affect their ability to stay in the sport and, you know, could be declaring bankruptcy just because of how, especially on the bottom end of the grid, it's got to be, it's got to be tough. Yeah. The, hmm, the, um, You know, going back to football for just another moment, right? If we think back to, you know, what can Tom Cruise teach us about Moto America? If we think back to Jerry Maguire, right? The whole thing is they've got, he's got this player who's really amazing, has all these impressive stats, but no one really knows about him. He doesn't know how to play the media game, right? And at the end, you know, he makes this touchdown, but gets like knocked down and then he finally figures out, oh, I've got to play it up for the crowd a little bit. And he makes this big celebration. Then just all of a sudden, the announcers are like, oh, do you realize he's made this many yards? He's done this many passes, this many, all this stuff. Like, are you kidding me? Where did this guy come from, right? Moto America is a sport like that. The stories, the race results, the everything is there, but it hasn't been discovered by the public. So if there's some sort of moment that they can play up really big. That's great. But the likelihood that the sport itself will just have this really big breakout moment to break out in front of the country or the world is fairly small. So they need to create 
those stories by not just making up stories by promoting the stories that are already there. If there's not, you know, a team of 10 people doing nothing, but just going around all the garages before the races, talking to people and trying to collect these stories and then putting them out on Facebook or wherever, then what are they doing? Right. Why aren't the sponsors themselves having these people do it? Right. If you spend all this money just trying, you know, just if you spend all this money to sponsor a team so people will look at that bike racing and associate your brand with winning, why wouldn't you just pay one extra person to constantly be writing and posting about it? Yeah. But I don't see those posts happening much. I just don't. And it's not like it's difficult to do. You just have to get someone whose like sole focus is to do it. You know, we don't really have the time in our lives to walk around constantly trying to create clips and do things and post a whole bunch of social media about this podcast because it takes a fair amount of time just to do the show to begin with. Also, social media is really just become a great way for journalists to talk to other journalists. It's not really good at capturing a market you don't already have. That's true, but if you don't have that presence, at least to begin with, it's difficult for other things to pop up, right? You can just create, you know, your Moto America page and have all the stories there, but it's just going to sit there with no traffic unless you have larger things to get people into the door. Right. Right. I don't know. I, I really hope that it does, that it does, uh, sort of, you know, catch on because I think the pop, I think Moto America is one of the things that could get more people than anything else into writing. Right. Um, you know, cause look at motocross, right? Motocross is definitely much more popular and motocross works because it seems pretty feasible to watch these, but you know, there's these to get a kid onto a small bike riding around in the dirt on the farm or wherever, right? There are dirt bike. There's way more dirt bike tracks, you know, for, for kids and amateurs. And there are like proper road tracks for people to rip sport bikes around. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of accessible that way. And, you know, you get you get a couple generations that have ridden dirt bikes, watch that. Then the younger kids watch it and they decide they want a bike, too. And it all pushes itself along. Right. All the manufacturers sell bikes every Monday just because the sport exists in and of itself. Now, wish whatever bike, you know, wins more might be selling more bikes and, you know, be the it bike. Right. And. You know, when when motorcycle racing was a bit more popular in like, you know, the 90s and all that stuff in the 80s. Well, you know, Yamaha and uh, and Kawasaki definitely saw a bump in sport bike sales because of that, because they were the kingship bikes to have, you know, all the all the YZRs and and the ZXs and all that stuff. And the GPZs, they were just the hot bikes that were winning the races. And that's why we know that you know today the R6 and the Ninja those are the those are the ones to have the Honda is the more reliable one but <laughs> that that's just how that works right 
Right. And, and, and enthusiasm for racing outside of this crazy prototype level that it is at MotoGP is dried up. And we've also seen a slump in sport bike sales. I mean, when everything has been slow sales, sport bike sales have been the slowest, right? Right. So I don't think we need to get motorcyclists into Moto America. We need to just get random people into Moto America. And I like my National Enquirer strategy. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it needs uh, some sort of like crossover promotional event with some other things like like um like NASCAR or uh That's or, true. Yeah, why Indy. can't yeah. Why can't we have a day of why can't we have like some sort of promotional material put out with, you know, uh who's big in NASCAR right now? You know, I can't tell you. Well, you're making a great case here. Uh but if you could get like an IndyCar driver and you know like Josh Heron, and they'll have a day of, all right, we'll compete on uh, go karts and mini bikes. Yeah, well, I mean, well, why aren't there more race days like you know um, joined up together, right? So, um, you know, Moto Moto America raced when the the World Superbike was at Laguna Seca, right? Is there any reason that you can't have, you know, IndyCar and Moto America? At the That's same what time? I was just about to say. Why, you know, how difficult can it be to fit, you know, Moto America racing into the Indianapolis 500 weekend? Because you got a whole bunch of people who are all about racing, right? And really, they're just about that race, you know. It is. It, it, we're from, well, we're not really from Indiana. We're sort of from Indiana. It's a place that we're from more than we're from other places, I guess the best way to put it. It is hard to describe to you how the 500 just takes over the entire state. It's nuts. It's not a one-day thing. It's like a two-week thing. And every hotel is sold out for 50, 60 miles. Like it's crazy. It's it's bigger than the Super Bowl. It's hard to imagine that, but it really is. And you know, there there's all sorts of you know exhibition things that happen for sure. You know, I know like Nikki Hayden used to do exhibition laps and things, you know, during during that weekend and stuff back in the day. But as far as a full on race. I don't know. Now, I understand on Sunday, you know, it's just the 500 that's going to race, and there's not much to get around that. But, you know, World Superbike already, you know, Superbike racing always already happens as a Saturday-Sunday sort of thing. So it, it can't be that difficult, right? right. If, you, if you just do at least two of the classes or something and you know th there's a way to do it or just do it like the Wednesday Thursday before the whole thing starts or something or make it happen on Monday just give people if you captured one tenth of the audience that goes to the NDA 500 you know something's gonna it's gonna happen you know and I know like the indie teams that's 
you know, just it just takes up a lot of space in the pits and the paddocks, but it's a large facility. There's got to be some way to make it happen. So, I don't know. I, the you know, where I'm sure with uh, with um, the different factories and everything involved, it's much easier for Moto America to tag on to World Superbiker Moto GP because they can go like, oh, okay, the Kawasaki Moto America team can use the the sorry, not the Kawasaki, the Yamaha Moto America team can use the Yamaha Garage, right and Right, I'm sure, you know, um, yeah, the Kawasaki team will just find its way into like you know the Tech Three pits or something. There's got to be a, there's only so much room, right, in the pit lane. There's there's got to be some sharing going on to make all that happen. But regardless, I don't see why more cross promotion can't happen. And I don't, I know there's not a lot of money for it, but like you've got to just they've got they've just got to start directing the money they have towards making that real and yeah there we go there's really nowhere else to go with it like give us national inquirer stories create some sensation it doesn't have to be all that make that much sense it they just need to sort of make a big splash and get us to recognize some names you know and once people recognize some names, half the battle is won. Because then they've got their stakes when they watch it. And, you know, them being able to access it is no problem. It's all on YouTube. How easy is that? So, all right. Let's see. Anything else to add before we do the outro? No, I think we're good. All right. Let's run it. And I don't want to die Just want to ride on my motorcycle Cold Remember, you can email us at the Podcast at gmail.com Bye